Hello and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Harry. In each podcast, I'll meet geographers from around the world to ask them about topical events, timely publications and geographical research. This morning, we're joined by Tim Marshall and some unruly scaffolders to discuss his latest book, Shadowplay, Behind the Lines and Under Fire. It is an engaging and very personalised story of the collapse of Yugoslavia in the 1990s and is a first-hand, on-the-ground account of Europe's last war. Hi Tim, thank you for joining us today. Pleasure to be here uh, uh, and as well as the uh, scaffolders outside who have joined us. So we're going to talk about Shadowplay, uh, your most recent publication. Um, I was really taken with your Serbian colleagues because uh, it personalised the story, the cameraman Freja and the producer Jaxa. Um, what did your producer Jaxa mean when you quoted him saying, ah, Yugoslavia, it was a good idea? I almost certainly called him Jaxa when I first met him. Uh, ya- Yaksha is... <laughs> Yaksha, sorry. <laughs> There's no reason for you... <laughs> to know that it is a uh, faraway country about most of us most of us know little uh, yeah he, i remember he, he he just sighed one day and said oh yugoslavia it was a good idea and i, I thought it through and then i also asked and but i mean i i, I kind of knew because there's a generation of yugoslavs who who feel that way um a very good friend of mine in, in london run, ran a cafe for a long time and it, it was like yugoslavia in there he happened to be a Croatian, um, yes, he was a, he was a Croatian ma- married to a Bosnian Muslim from memory, you know, mixed marriage, and they'd had to flee because they were in a mixed marriage, and the cafe was like Yugoslavia. You'd get the Serbs in and the Bosnians in and Montenegrins in, and the one thing you didn't do is talk about the war. What Yaksha meant was that of all the communist countries, this was the most successful economically, and it was a police state. And they did have all these, what I regarded as nonsensical communist things, you know, the young guard that had to wear, you know, uniforms and stuff. And it wasn't free. But it was freer than all the other communist countries. It was economically successful. It's a lovely part of the world. They did come together as an economic and political union. They used to go on holiday. If you were in Serbia, you, you travel down to the Croatian coastline with your fellow Yugoslavs in the summer. And if you're a Croatian, you might go over to Serbia in the winter to ski, etc., etc. And then you might go up to Slovenia for the wine. And you were all Yugoslavs. Very good education system, very good health system. And then it just was torn apart. It didn't fall apart, it was torn apart. That's, that's what he meant. So my next question uh, asks, so what happened? Who was involved in the Kosovo war, described on your front cover as Europe's last war? Yeah, I, I say Europe's last war because unlike Bosnia and Croatia war, this one brought in the NATO powers. You know, so you had 28 countries, in, uh, 20, 28 countries involved and, an, on, and on the front lines of bo- both the air campaign and then the troops coming in. You know, real involvement from the Brits and the Americans, but also the Italians, uh, French, Germans. Of course, you had Macedonia involved because so many of the refugees were forced out there. Serbia and Kosovo, which then was part of Serbia, and and Montenegro. These were, all these countries were involved. So you know, this was a European war. So that's what I meant. And it it happened. Be, Kosovo happened because Bosnia happened. 
um, Bosnia happened because Slovenia happened and in a very very briefly the yoke of communism was lifted with the death of Tito uh, and the fall of, of uh, communism and the Berlin Wall and at that point they could have made a decision to stay together as Yugoslavia as a federation but the, the, the siren call of nationalists including from Belgrade, because and Serbs dominated the military and, to a lesser extent, the politics, and they were the biggest economic part of the federation. And so the siren call of nationalism came up. Slovenes were first to go, three-day mini-conflict, uh, and then Bosnia, and then Croatia, and it was only a matter of time before Kosovo went up, um, because they, the outside powers took their eye off the ball, Milosevic thought, um, um, I, I can hang on to this province. And, of course, it turned out to uh, not be the case. I was trying to think of a description myself. Is it fair to say that it's a complicated breakup of a country into smaller ethno-states? Yeah, broad brush, I think that is fair, because the slow, there's very few Serbs in Slovenia uh, in, in 91. And... So, although the Yugoslav army, dominated by Serbs, but the Yugoslav army did say, no, you, you can't go, and there was this brief three-day war, they, they didn't really care. You know, it was ethnically, I don't like the word pure, but um, homogeneous. So that went. But no, Bosnia is a different matter, because in Bosnia you had the three communities, and Bos the Bosnian Croats and Bosniaks, Bosnian Muslims, felt they wanted an independent Bosnia. But the Serbs that lived in Bosnia said, no, we don't want to leave Yugoslavia. And, and uh, we're prepared to fight for that. And in Serbia, they said, we're prepared to fight for that as well. And so the Bosnian war broke out. And I think that, that, that was to do with the ethnicities and the fighting was exactly about who lived where. And then again, yeah, in, in Kosovo, um, by the time the war broke out, it was, I think it's a clear majority of people in Kosovo were Albani Kosovo or Albanians, different language, mostly a different religion than, than the uh, Orthodox Serbs. So again, I, you know, this was about ethnicities, sadly, uh, as well as about other stuff as well. But yeah, you know, because it, it, when it divided, it all divided in, in, along the lines that were drawn to do with the populations. And I noticed that in your maps at the start of the book that it was very mixed and interspersed and then by the end it had solidified. Yeah. I mean, take, take the Serbs in Kraina. I think there was 400,000 of them uh, in the Kraina region of Croatia. And by the end of the war in Croatia, there were just a few thousand, you know, about 400,000 of them were forced out. They fled during something called Operation Storm. Um, and they fled into Serbia. I mean, one of the real ironies of it all is that these refugees, they'd been... The Serbs had been in, in Kraina for hundreds and hundreds of years and very integrated. I mean, they still lived, you know, there could be a Serb-dominated town or a Serb-dominated village, but, you know, everybody lived together. And one of the great ironies is that the, of the 400,000 that fled, thousands of them uh, then ended up in Kosovo as refugees. And so, of course, five years later, they're up and running again because when the revenge came in, back into Kosovo, they had to flee again back up into Serbia proper. Two waves of displacement. Yeah. Was the main mistake not supporting the 1996 uprising in Belgrade after the Dayton Agreement? Well, they, they did support the outside world, the Europeans and the Americans basically, did, did 
marginally. No, they did support the, the, the demonstrations. They were um, giving uh, diplomatic support to them. They were putting pressure on to try not to get so much levels of brutality as the demonstrators were beaten off the streets. And there was some low-level, subtle help. An outside power might, might press a, a whole bunch of DVDs or CDs and smuggle them in in diplomatic bags to hand out to the activists and things. They didn't give it the full-throated support, though. Milosevic did draw the conclusion they don't really care. They've taken their eye off the ball. And I, th- that, I think that was a factor in how hard he then cracked down when the Kosovan situation came to the fore a couple of years later. You mentioned um, diplomatic uh, cars and the movement of clandestine arms drops. Was the early deployment of plainclothes British troops a part of the IPB significant? The IPB standing for the intelligence preparation of the battlefield. We're talking about 1998 now. And in that year, the KLA, the Kosovan Liberation Army, had was become very active. And they killed about 1,000 Serbs. And the Serb security forces had killed about 2,000 uh, Kosovars. So, you know, the, the, the war was sort of on. Not the, not the outside powers coming in, but the war was on. And it was clear to many people that the probability would be that there'd be a full-blown war the next year. Uh, and the Brits and others did take advantage of the various monitoring missions to insert military people into them, get them on the ground, and therefore be able to spot the bridges, uh, the terrain, the units, numbers of people, just stuff. But I, I don't think it affected what happened. It just made them slightly better prepared for what they then hit the following year. Yeah, I mean, it, it's common practice. Uh, it's what intelligence services do. I don't think it changed the trajectory that much. Did the UN have any role on the ground? The Srebrenica massacre surely ranks as a sign of the organization's impotency. Yeah, this is, now we're back in Bosnia in um, in 95, 94, where the, the UN had this presence on the ground and it had these things called safe zones and they just made themselves look stupid because they weren't safe for anybody. So what's the point of declaring them a safe zone? This was Madeleine Albright uh, policy. And Srebrenica was a safe zone, guarded by Dutch troops. And that's where 7,000 civilians were slaughtered over three days by the uh, Bosnian Serb army. So I, th- I think the UN took a massive, massive blow, huge blow. Uh, and the outside world took a huge blow. And the Americans, people like Clinton, Blair, I'm not sure Blair was in power then, but he, he was by 97, as, and, and so was Clinton. There was this generation of diplomats, military people, UN, that saw Srebrenica had happened with the UN supposedly having it as a safe zone. And I think that did uh, affect their thinking that we're not going to let this happen again in Kosovo. And I think that, that was, I think Srebrenica is one of the reasons why they did get involved uh, too late to stop it, but they did get involved militarily three years later in, in Kosovo. Were all these actors joined up? Uh, occasionally in the book it felt like the Americans were at odds with the British in terms of the use of satellites and uh, the movement of troops and in general response. There were disagreements with how to 
go ahead. And I think the British were trying harder for there not to be a war, to somehow to try and stop it and to put in all the monitoring units. But I think that Madeleine Albright, the Secretary of State, and to a lesser extent Clinton, may have already come to the conclusion this is inevitable, there's going to be a war next year. And so, yeah, you know, I came across these examples where their monitors were actually more pretty much getting the coordinates for which bridge they were going to bomb the following year as opposed to trying to monitor ceasefires and things so yeah there was a, there was a discrepancy there but no overall the americans and the brits were on the on the same page in trying to stop it but with the british thinking that it, that that could succeed and the americans pretty much thinking well we'll try but we don't think it'll succeed we think there'll be a war I asked that because at one point you mentioned that President Clinton announces, uh, I'm not going to send American ground troops to a war in a place most of you have never heard of. That really didn't help because um, hostilities, I think, had broken out at that point, but it was the air war. And then Clinton comes on and addresses the American people and saying, I'm not putting your boys on the ground. At which point, what do the Serbs think? Great, we'll just survive the bombing campaign somehow, they'll get tired, and we'll win. It was, a, it was a foolish thing to say because it, it made the Serbs, I think, hang on for longer than they might have done. And, of course, that, that cost lives. You know, every day that went past, more people were killed. At the French castle, uh, Rambouillet, um, you say the Serbs were given a peace deal, um, interpreted either as a chance to avoid being bombed or a surrender document. What is it in your mind? I think, I, I think it could be both. They, they were given a chance. Uh, Rambouillet was in the... Uh, Oh, depths of winter. The bombing started, I think, in March 99. So it was a few weeks before that. And everyone had gone to the Rombouet in France, this big peace conference, to try to put together this deal that Serbia would accept so there wouldn't be a NATO bombing because NATO was threatening to bomb. But, I, you know, I, I, I looked at the terms of it. So, yes, there was a chance if Serbia had accepted that deal but when you looked at the terms of the deal, it was a surrender document, which Milosevic probably thought, if I sign that, you know, they'll be so angry at me that um, I'll be overthrown. So I just, I just do not see how he could have signed it. And again, I think the Americans knew he couldn't sign it, you know, and they were already factoring in. He's not going to sign. We are going to war. Whereas, again, at Rombouet, the Brits and others were saying, you've got to sign this. He didn't. And it was inevitable from that moment. After that, the bombing initially hit empty barracks and clear airfields because the Serbs were well prepared for the bombing campaign. Uh, what changed? How was the campaign won eventually? Well, up to a point, it was empty airfields. On the very first night, I, I was there. I heard the explosions downtown. I saw them. I saw the, you know, the city centre in flames. They did hit a lot of government buildings, and they did hit the runways and some of the airports. But uh, they they mostly held off. Uh, in, this is like phase one. But the the Serbs can, could survive having you know the Ministry of Interior flattened or this barracks flattened because it was empty or this airfield because they had other and very few planes went up because they knew they would be shot down immediately. So you know they could do without the airfield for the time being. But but they'd also brilliantly hidden a lot of their kit in woods, in schools, uh, caves, mountains, you name it, they'd hidden it, and a lot of their troops, and they were moving them around a lot, a uh, cover of darkness. And so as the weeks wore on, and essentially 
NATO was, the phrase was, they were rearranging the rubble. You know, they're running out of targets and the Serbs weren't giving in and uh, there was no sign of it in the near future. So they, they, they stepped it up and they started bombing bridges. Now that really starts to hit economically, hits the people, people get scared. And I'm afraid they also hit civilians. Um, I no belief at all this was intentional, but there were some terrible errors. Uh, they hit a, a bridge in a market town on market day at 12 o'clock when it couldn't have been busier. You know, I ask in the book, why didn't you do it at midnight? Uh, they hit a, a train bridge with a train going across it. Again, I don't believe this was deliberate, but they were making mistakes. So that was phase two. And then phase three, they went after a lot of the troops down in Kosovo, and I think they did hit hundreds and hundreds of them. You know, the, the Serbs have never admitted how many military losses they had. They had about 450 civilians killed. I have to say, at this time, many um, Kosovo and Albanians, A, had already lost their lives, and B, hundreds of thousands of them had been driven to the border. You know, this wasn't just one, you know, one-way traffic. And then after about two months, you could sense that they were getting tired. The threat of ground war now was there because Blair had talked Clinton round. You've got to have the threat of troops on the ground, an invasion. Otherwise, they're not going to crack. And, it was get, and the troops were beginning to assemble on the borders of Macedonia. And the, I just think they realised, we, A, we can't hang out, they're going to just destroy the country. I mean, for example, Chachak, the town of Chachak, they, they hit the factories. And this was an economic target, I think. So th they started to crack. There were tens of thousands of troops waiting on the border. And so they, they caved, they signed the document, it allowed it, the troops to come in, the Serbs would leave Kosovo, NATO troops would come in, but only up to the border with Serbia proper, whereas the Romboe surrender document said that the NATO troops could go anywhere in Serbia that they wanted to. This held them uh, at the border of Serbia proper. And finally it stopped, and uh, it hasn't broken out since. Of course, what immediately happened is the Kosovo Albanians came back, hundreds of thousands of them, wanting revenge, and X hundreds of thousands of Serbs were then ethnically cleansed out of Kosovo up into Serbia, and it's frozen. It's been tense, very tense occasionally. The Serbian army has moved to the border two or three times, but the peace more or less has held. The man who doesn't exist, uh, John Raven, the intelligence officer, the Srebrenica massacre, the bombing of Jovan and Sofia, uh, the change of heart by the special forces commander, the legionnaire, all paint a very personalised story. Uh, why do authors include characters like this? Because they personalise it, because they add colour and drama to what are colourful and dramatic events. I mean, the legionnaire is a great uh, legia, as he was called in Serbia, ex-special forces, ex-French um, foreign legion, took part in all the worst things that ever happened in the Balkans in the 90s. Uh, but just his, his name, the legionnaire, you know, it, 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 is, it is fiction but fact. And so when you tell stories like the legionnaire's story, who when Milosevic was being overthrown that day, was called into action to go and gun down the crowds and got down there and thought, not doing it, took off his balaclava. You know, these are seminal moments, but they're also incredibly colourful moments about things that do happen during revolutions and coup d'etats and all the rest of it. So I think they're very important. They're very important to, to tell a, a narrative flow. As for Jovan and um, Sofia, again, 
well, what is that old phrase? It's attributed to Stalin. There's no record of him actually saying it, but one death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic. So if you talk about these two deaths of these people that were just minding their own business in their flat one night, and then I think I'm pretty sure it was the RAF, but a NATO bomb drops on their apartment block, flattening it and flattening and killing them, and you tell their story, I just I think that almost has more impact than saying a million people died because these were two, not of a million, but these were two of, two, of 450. So I, I, I think it's just a way of telling a story better. I think there's room for that in academia as well. I mean, it's a different thing, academia, uh, and they have to be very careful, and they, and they can't put too much colour in. But I, I think academia could soften a little and include examples uh, more, and I think that they would be more widely read. Should they want to be more widely read? Maybe they don't. Maybe they want things to stay in academia. I don't know. Um, it's interesting you, you mentioned um, moments jumping out uh, and adding colour to those characters. Um, in the book, uh, Shadow Play, one of the five protest columns led by the Kakak mayor, uh, Vladimir Ilik, is really poignant because they have a big yellow um, bulldozer yeah. and they drive it into central Belgrade and um, it's, it's something that really stuck in my mind. Amazing story, and forgive me for boasting, I had a world-exclusive TV on that one because a little bird whispered in my ear, get yourself down to Chachak. That's the key to everything that, that has happened. And we got down there, and we were the first one with the story, da, da, da. and then afterwards I got the full story about what happened. Because, and, and also, this really informed my view of revolutions and coup d'etats and, and action. For example, when I went on to places like Tehran, and there were demonstrations, I was able to use experiences like that to judge what I think might happen and how successful it will be. And that lesson was, because Chachak was this big industrial town and uh, you know lots of big, beefy, burly guys. There was a kickboxing team, 20 or 30 of them, that went along their column. And what happened was the five major roads that go into Belgrade, different people came from different towns along them. And Chachak was, was one of them, and they brought this bulldozer with them, which at one point was picking up police cars and chucking them in ravines. Uh, and it made it all the way into town, and it bulldozed its way through. It smashed the front windows of the, the, the national TV and radio station. But you need muscle, and this was muscle. And when it's students on the streets and intellectuals and academics, and they're very brave because they're often getting battered off the streets, but they very rarely win until the muscle arrives. And when the muscle shows up, guys that... that if a copper takes a truncheon out, they're just battering with an iron bar, whereas the students tend not as much to do that. So that was, that was a real lesson that I learned. And it was very vivid, this big yellow <laughs> bulldozer driving up through central Belgrade. And, uh, yeah, so I got down there, and um, they, 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 they scooped me up. Illich, the mayor, said, oh, come with me. There's the bulldozer. Oh, fantastic. And they gave me a ride in it around town and stuff. And uh, just an amazing story. But that, that is, you know, you need, you need kit and muscle to do a revolution. Um, placards aren't enough. Very interesting. Early on in the introduction, in fact, you mentioned that both sides are considering a land swap. Yeah. Um, I just wondered if that was still a possibility, if it's... It's a possibility. Uh, again, the geography of it is, many people will be familiar, you've got Serbia to the north, and then right directly below it, Kosovo. If you do an ethnic map 
of the two countries. What you see towards the bottom of Serbia in what's called the Preševo Valley, is, which is part of Serbia, is, is an area which is majority Kosovar Albanians. So, okay, why don't we just draw the line around that area and give it to Kosovo? And in return, in the north of Kosovo, bordering Serbia, there's the city of Mitrovica, which is in Kosovo, but it's the north half of the city is a bridge, is dominated, it's populated entirely now, I think, by Serbs. Okay, let's draw around a little round line around there. Everyone's happy. Okay, and at the south of uh, Kosovo, we could just elongate a little bit of a line from Serbia, incorporate the three, two or three Serb enclaves that are still left down there, guarded by uh, outside forces. Marvellous. But, <laughs> but, A, there's two small enclaves of Serbs that will be left there behind. Okay. But the Mitrovica area has some mines which are very valuable economically. Okay. But the pressure of a valley, the only Serb motorway that runs down to the sea, that gives them access to the sea, runs through the pressure of a valley, that would mean that their only direct access down to the sea would be effectively controlled by Kosovo, which isn't a problem unless hostilities begin again, at which point you're cut off. And the last problem, and this is more for the outside world, because even if they did start talking about that very, very seriously, and they have had discussions, what's to then stop the minority Albanians in Montenegro from saying, well, actually, we'd like to carve a little bit of our place, and what's to stop the top third of Macedonia, which is majority Albanian, well, we'd like to carve this bit out and push it into Kosovo, and... Most importantly, what's to stop Republika Srpska, the Serbian part of Bosnia, which which joins onto the border with Serbia? They say, well, we want to incorporate ourselves into Serbia. And the whole thing starts again. That's the problem with land swaps. You mentioned on an interview with Sky News last year, I think, that it's um, simmering. And yeah. you've said in the past that it's a tinderbox. It really, yeah. it really appears to be that way still. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, tinderboxes can become damp, trying to stretch the analogy. Uh, and simmering, of course, is a pot. But yeah, you, you get the idea. It, it does, it simmers. Sometimes it's just, you know, it's fine. I mean, everyone knows that there are these underlying issues and tensions, but it's absolutely fine. But uh, other times there'll be an incident, you know, somebody might get shot in Mitrovica or a demonstration will cross the bridge or a Serb church down south will be attacked, you know, whatever the incident is, and tensions rise and they start shouting at each other across diplomatic channels. And three times the Serb army has moved to the border. You know, nobody ever really thought they were going to cross, but that's when accidents happen. So every now and again, it, it can go um, pop, if not bang. And um, there are other issues. Uh, the, the Republic of Serbska police force in Bosnia is, is being pretty much armed by the Russians, who still want to hang on to their influence there. Oh, that's the, the very beginning when you said about R Europe's war. Of course, the Russians entered at the very last minute as well by coming into Kosovo from Bosnia. Um, so, yeah, you know, all, all the, the, basically the Balkan wars of, in 1911 and 1912 and I think 1913 haven't actually really been settled. You know, you've still got these problems. And in the 21st century, it's back to what it was. Lines on the map, who lives where, ethnicities, nationalisms, identity... Uh, we're still we're still fighting these wars. It's such a great book for understanding the Balkans. Um, thank you very thank much you. for coming in, Tim. Thanks for listening. 
If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the Ask the Geographer podcast series on iTunes and SoundCloud.com. Be inspired and stay informed with the Society's wide range of resources, many of which are free. School membership unlocks access to other excellent resources, including online lectures and many other tailor-made benefits for teachers and students. Access our resources at www.rgs.org schools.